Well, good morning to you all. If you don't know me, I'm, my name is Martin Slack. I'm the pastor of uh, Westlake. And we're going to be looking at this um, passage that um, Christine read to us. I want to start, though, by um, just acknowledging maybe that when we see the world going in a direction we don't want it to go, that we don't like, there's a temptation, isn't there? And that temptation is to try and use power to change it. That could just be the, the power of he who shouts loudest and longest wins and you get into the politics of rage. It could be that we seek to use conventional political power and you look to this person or to that party as the answer. Or it could be, as some have, uh, just physical power, violence. But at the heart of Christianity, as we see here, is something fundamentally different. And it's a paradox because Christianity absolutely wants to change the world. It sees the state of the world. It sees the state of our lives and says things are not right. Okay, things need to change. But it doesn't use power to do it, or at least not the kind of power we tend to think of as power. Instead, in this paradox, it says that it's in weakness that you find strength. It's in giving up that you get. It's in dying that you live. But nowhere is that world-changing paradox greater than in today's passage. You see, Cicero, the, um, the Roman statesman, he described crucifixion as this cruelest and vilest penalty. And yet, what the Bible tells us, it is through that penalty, it is through the horror of the cross, at, of the cross and Christ becoming totally weak and broken, that God has unleashed a power that does far more than just change the world in generalities. It has the power to change the daily realities of every one of our lives. Okay, but look how it begins, because an event filled with paradoxes begins with one. Mark tells us that after Jesus' trial before the religious leaders, which we looked at last week, verse 1, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. This is, as we were looking at in class this morning, this is the one who created the heavens and the earth. This is the one whose hands threw stars into space and his hands are bound and he is handed over into the power of Rome. And as he is, Mark wants you to see four things about him. Firstly, he's the king. Now as Roman governor, Pilate would not have been the least bit interested in the kind of religious arguments that were bothering the Sanhedrin when they were trying Jesus. So they know, don't they? They know that if they want to secure a guilty verdict against Jesus, they're going to have to frame this in a, in a way, in a charge that Pilate will understand, that will get Pilate fired up. So Mark tells us, verse 2, Pilate asked him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that is a title that 
Jesus has never used of himself and it is not a title that the early church used of Jesus. So this is not Mark making this up. Okay, This is not Mark writing how the church saw Jesus back into the account of his trial. This is how the religious leaders must have gone to Pilate and tried to explain to him the term Messiah or Christ. Okay, Pilate, governor, you need to deal with this man because he is claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. He's claiming to be the king of the Jews. You see, under Roman law, the only people who could call themselves kings were people who Caesar gave that title to, people who Caesar allowed to be king. Anyone else claiming to be a king, by definition, is rebelling against Caesar's power. They're guilty of sedition, of insurrection or of rebellion. And so Pilate asks Jesus, is that who you are? Is that who you are claiming to be? And Jesus replies, verse 2, you have said so. Now, is that a yes or a no? I mean, which one is it? Because when the, when the high priest asked him, as we saw last week, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus is unequivocal, isn't he? He says, I am. But here, there's no I am. Why not? Because is Jesus the king of the Jews? And the answer is yes. But when Pilate hears those words, what does he think? He thinks of power. He thinks of political and military might. He thinks of splendor and of riches. He thinks of the kind of man who sees other men as expendable to achieve his aim. Is Jesus that kind of a king? Absolutely not. But is he a king? Yes, he is. And so it's as if he bats the question back to Pilate. Am I the king of the Jews? Pilate, that is for you to decide. But it's so often in this gospel, it's also for us to decide, isn't it? What kind of a king is he? What is the nature of this king's power? Then, of course, silence follows after Jesus' response. And into that silence, the chief priests throw accusation after accusation. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things. And in Luke's gospel, Luke fleshes out what those accusations were. They say he's spreading false propaganda. He's telling people they should not pay taxes to Caesar. He's claiming to be a king. He's stirring up people to rebel. So Pilate asks him, verse 4, have you no answer to make? I mean, the crime that you are charged with carries the death penalty. Your life is in my hands. Have you got no defence to make? And Mark says that rather than join in the politics of rage, rather than trying to shout louder and longer than his opponents, than his accusers, verse 5, Jesus made no further answer. And in face of that silence, Pilate was amazed. Think about Pilate. He's seen it all, hasn't he? He is a man who's seen it all. He has probably had men in this very room begging him for mercy. 
furiously denying all charges against them, offering him bribes, offering him anything to escape with their life. He's seen it all. What he has not seen is a king like this king. Now, what would this have meant for Mark's first readers? Because they're facing their own pilots, aren't they? They're, fa they're facing their own judges in Rome. And they are facing their own opportunities to deny being followers of this king of the Jews. They've got plenty of opportunity to deny being a member of what we saw last week, this depraved superstition of Christianity. How should they respond? Well, the Apostle Peter writes to tell them, he says that Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, if that was Mark's first readers, what about us? Because we are also living in a time when, to a much lesser degree, being a Christian also carries a stigma. And when that is the case, listen, it is not the shock jocks, it is not the grenade lobbers of the Twitter sphere who are to be our example. It is Christ. And faced with that example, Pilate tries to release him. But in doing so, he reveals something else of who he is. Secondly, he's the substitute. He is the king, but he's also the substitute. Now, as a way of winning favour with people, Roman governors would typically, at you know, times of festive celebration, public occasions, would sometimes declare amnesties for prisoners. And for Pilate, this was clearly Pilate's practice as well, what better time to do that than Passover? You know, a feast that celebrated Israel effectively being released from prison, an amnesty, if you like, on uh, Israel in Egypt. So when the crowd form, demanding that Pilate do it again, Pilate plays his card. Verse nine, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? You see, he knows, verse 10, that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. What's envy? You know, when you feel envious of someone, what is that? It's that resentment, isn't it? When someone is more successful or more popular than you, and that is how the leaders are feeling about Jesus. They have watched Jesus' popularity they have seen his power over sickness and demons and death, and they are envious. And as the experienced politician that he is, Pilate can recognize envy at a hundred meters. What he had not banked on was the power of these religious leaders to stir up and fire up the crowd. Verse 11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Barabbas, Mark tells us, was, verse 7, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. 
Just get that. He, that the very thing that Jesus is accused of, being a rebel, of leading an insurrection, Barabbas is actually guilty of. And this more than likely is the day of his execution. But look at his name. Bar-Abbas, son of the father. Maybe his dad was a rabbi. But his name also spells out the choice that the crowd and Pilate face. The innocent or the guilty. The son of the father or the son of the father. Which one does the crowd want? Which one will Pilate choose? Which one are they going to let loose? The one who has tried to use raw power to get what he wants or the Prince of Peace? And yet, if the leaders are driven by envy and if the crowd are being manipulated by the leaders, what's Pilate controlled by? Something's controlling him, isn't it? It is the crowd and his desire to please the crowd. And he stands as an example to us that to make moral decisions based on what the crowd thinks, even if they are in the majority, even if that's what everyone is saying and shouting out, to base your moral decisions on that is to walk on dangerous ground. And to try and win the favour or popularity of the crowd by doing what it by what you by doing what you think it wants, whether that's release a prisoner or behave in a certain way or hold certain views, leads you to compromising your integrity. And Pilate thinks that he can use the crowd to get what he wants, but it's him who ends up being used. So he tries another tack, the direct appeal, verse 12. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And Mark tells us, verse 13, they cried out, crucify him. Why that? I mean, they have, they could have picked any number of penalties in the law book, but they don't. They pick the worst. They pick the penalty reserved for runaway slaves, for insurrectionists, and for the scum of the earth. For the Jews, for someone who is accursed. A penalty that none of them would have wanted for themselves. And that is why Pilate finds himself in the position of pleading for this man. Verse 14, why? What evil has he done? I mean, give me a reason. Can't you see this is all about envy? He's innocent. But they can't give Pilate a reason because there is no reason. No reason except one. You see, if the religious leaders are controlled by envy and the crowd are being controlled by the leaders, and Pilate is being controlled by the crowd, the only person who is not being controlled by anyone else is the man on trial. The man who stands there in silence. The man who is in control of everything. You see, back in chapter 10, Jesus said that the reason he had come 
was to give his life as a ransom for many. And now, if only he defended himself, if only he defended himself, Pilate could let him go free. But Jesus doesn't defend himself. It's as if he wants to be condemned, because he does. Because he is going to drink the cup that the Father has passed him. Because the man standing there, bound and chained, he is the freest man of them all. So verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now imagine you were Barabbas that morning. Would you have slept much last night? Would you have slept much knowing that today you would be crucified? What would your night have been like? What would your early morning have been like? But now it is early morning and the guards enter your cell and they drag you out and up into the courtyard and you see the crowd come to witness your death, crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But then the guards turn to you and say, you're free. The man Jesus is being crucified in your place. Now go. What would you think? But listen, you are Barabbas. We all are. Now sure, you are not imprisoned under the power of Rome, but what does have a hold of you? What has got a hold of you? What controls you? Is it envy like the leaders? Is it what the crowd are thinking? And you know, our modern world, is that what's got a grip on you? Is it the wrong choices of the crowd? Is it the moral compromises of a pilot? Is it those habits that you can't get free from? Is it the bitterness or anger about the past you can't escape from? And of course, just like him, all of us are under a sentence of death a physical death and spiritual death of alienation from God as a penalty for our sins. But just as Jesus takes Barabbas's place, he takes your place. As Peter says, he takes the place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what would you have done if you were Barabbas? Whatever you think you would have done, Barabbas plays no further part in the story. And rather than anyone coming up to Jesus and expressing their gratitude and loyalty or even pity, Jesus stands alone. Because thirdly, he's the forsaken. He's the king. He's the substitute. And he's the forsaken. Now, I think one of the remarkable things about the way the Gospels describe Jesus's crucifixion is that they don't. They really don't. None of them seek to sensationalise the physical horror of what Jesus undergoes. Instead, Mark's emphasis is not on the brutality of the cross. It is on the shame of the cross. And before being crucified, Jesus is scourged, a punishment, a flogging whose pain was matched only by its degradation. 
And having been handed over to Pilate's soldiers, Jesus is taken inside their headquarters and Mark describes the mocking that he endures there in a mock coronation. Verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. Purple, the colour of royalty. Thorns in place of Caesar's gold crown. And in place of Ave Caesar, verse 18, they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. A reed that Matthew tells us they had given to him as a fake scepter, the emblem of royal power. Probably they're spitting on him in a mockery of the anointing oil with which you would anoint a king. So they're doing it with their spit. And this is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. But now after his flogging, his body is too weak to carry his cross. So Mark tells us, verse 21, that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And Simon was most likely a, a North African, which is interesting. But why mention his sons? Because they're not carrying the cross. Why say the father of Alexander and Rufus? Because when Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, which is where Mark is writing this gospel almost certainly. At the end in Romans 16, Paul mentions a Rufus. And Rufus is clearly a member of the church there in Rome. And Mark is writing this gospel for the Christians there in Rome. And so Mark is saying, guys, this is Rufus's dad. He carried Jesus's cross. And if you look at that passage, and I think it's Romans 16, 13, it says, um, uh, Rufus, I think, servant of God, and, and, and greet his mother as well, who has become a mother to me, Paul says. Imagine that. The indignity, the injustice of the Romans forcing this man, Simon, to carry Jesus' cross has this tidal wave effect in his family as they all appear to come to faith. And his, his wife, Rufus's mum, isn't just a mum to him, Rufus. She becomes a mum to the Apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of the church. And it all begins with carrying Jesus's cross. But having brought him to the place of the skull, Mark says, verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What was that? Was that an act of mercy on the part of the soldiers, offering him something to numb his pain? Maybe. But if so, Jesus refuses to be anaesthetized to our sin or our suffering. More likely, it is another way of mocking him because myrrh was used as a perfume and as a flavoring. And so these soldiers are in all likelihood offering the king the finest of wines. 
And then Mark simply says, verse 24, and they crucified him. And their usual, usual practice to maximize the humiliation was to crucify criminals naked. Whether they did so with Jesus or not, we don't know. What we do know is they stripped him and gambled for his clothing. And as they do so, they unintentionally fulfill the words of the innocent sufferer in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But of course, they also had to give a reason, a public reason for the execution. So verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him, the charge nailed above his head, read, the king of the Jews. And then Mark says, verse 27, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Does that remind you of anything? Does that, does that set some bells ringing? Do you remember back in chapter 20, sorry, back in chapter 10, how James and John come to Jesus and ask that they might be, when he comes into his kingdom, Jesus, we want the best seats. We want to be your right and left hand men. We want to take those seats, one at your right hand and one at your left. Who gets given those spots? Condemned criminals. The very people Jesus has come to save, because this is Christ's enthronement. Enthroned on a cross, crowned with thorns, with his title, King of the Jews, nailed above his head, and sinners seated on either side of him. It is the exact opposite of everything Pilate or we would ever think of as royal or powerful. And it is why, as he hangs there, that he is mocked by three groups of people. First come the passers-by, who say, verse 29 to 30, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In other words, hey, you who claim to have all of this power and authority to destroy and rebuild the temple, now look at you. You haven't even got the power to climb down. But it's here, at the cross, at the temple of his body, the place where heaven and earth met, was being destroyed. And here, where he was beginning the building of the new temple, the one combined people of God. But then come the priests and the scribes saying, verse 31 and 32, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And yet it is by him hanging there and not coming down that he is fulfilling his mission as Christ the King. Because it's in not saving himself that he saves all of us who see and believe. Then thirdly, Mark tells us, verse 32, that even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Just get that. Understand how low he has fallen. That even the condemned, even those who everyone else would have thought of as scum and accursed, even they mock him. Because Jesus has plumbed the depths of what it means to be ridiculed and treated like you are worthless. And yet, he goes lower still, 
verses 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, at the very first Passover, a thousand more years ago, in the plague before the last plague, in the plague before the death of the firstborn, darkness came over the land of Egypt at the first Passover. It was a warning of what was to come. And here at Passover, as the Passover lambs are about to be sacrificed in the temple and right before the death of the firstborn son, darkness descends. And Jesus has not spoken since he responded to Pilate. But now, out of the darkness, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. It is the God-forsaken cry of the innocent, righteous sufferer. And in the darkness, as the wrath and the anger of God for all of our sins, all of the justice of God against us was poured out upon him, God the Father turns his face away. And hearing him cry out, people think he's calling Elijah. Because after all, hey, Elijah's supposed to come before the Messiah. And maybe Jesus think, really still thinks he is the Messiah and that Elijah's going to come and rescue him. But Elijah doesn't come because Jesus isn't calling him and Jesus has no intention of being rescued. Instead, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And he dies, utterly forsaken and alone. And that would be a tragedy if it wasn't for what comes next. Fourthly, he is the son. Because as Jesus dies, Mark tells us something dramatic happened. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And you guys, most of you will know what that curtain is. It is the curtain that divided the rest of the temple off from the most holy place, the place where God's presence dwelt, the place where only one man once a year, the high priest on the day of atonement, could go with the blood of a sacrifice. It is a curtain that says no entry, access denied, trespasses do so at their own risk. But as Jesus dies, it is as if it is torn from top to bottom. It is as if God reaches down and tears that curtain apart. Why? Firstly, it is a foreshadowing of the total destruction that is going to come on the temple. Because as Jesus dies in the place of Barabbas and of all of us, the full and final sacrifice for sins has been made and there is no need for any more temples or sacrifices. Jesus has done it all. Secondly, Jesus has torn down that no entry sign. It is, is, it, it is as if God is saying that barrier that divided you from me, it's gone. Think about that. You see, here we see the charge against Jesus nailed above his head. 
if you were to sit down now and write out on a, you take a piece of paper and write out a charge sheet against yourself, what would go on it? What could be held against you? What could be pinned against your head? This is what Martin Slack is guilty of. What would you put on your list? Think of those things that you shouldn't have done but you did, or those things that you should have done that you didn't. How long might that list be? Writing to the Colossians, Paul tells us that it is that charge sheet, it is that record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that charge sheet that your conscience and Satan constantly nags you about, telling you you are unworthy, you haven't done enough, look at your life. It is that charge sheet that is nailed to the cross, that Christ takes upon himself and is nailed there and dealt with. And at the cross, Christ has cancelled every single one of them. Your charge sheet, sheet is wiped clean because he has paid for them all. And he became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He was stripped naked so that you might be covered. He was flogged so that you might be embraced by God your heavenly father. He was mocked that you might be loved. He was brought to the lowest place so that you might be lifted up to the highest place. He was crowned with thorns so that, as Peter says, you might receive the unfading crown of glory. And in the darkness, he was forsaken so that you might be accepted. And as God the Father tears down the curtain, he is saying, hey, come. Don't stand off, come. Don't hesitate, come. Come, enter my most holy place. Look upon me and live. But thirdly, it tells us the one last thing of who Jesus is. You see, there is one other place where Mark uses this same word for something being torn open. And interestingly, it is right back at the beginning of the gospel. We're at the end, it's right back at the beginning at Jesus' baptism, where Mark tells us Jesus saw the heavens being torn open, same word, and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And now, as Jesus dies, it is as if that same scene is repeated, except this time it's not heavens that are torn open. It is the curtain barring the way to heaven that is torn open. And instead of the voice of God, it is interesting the voice of a pagan soldier who declares who Jesus is. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. He has likely watched multiple men die by crucifixion, but not this man. This man, covered in blood, 
crowned with thorns, with the king of the Jews nailed above his head, this man is different. And a Gentile outsider sees what the religious leaders refuse to see. Oh my, he is the son of God. But listen, it is through the paradox of the cross, of the weakness and the shame of the cross, that God's power to change the world and your life in the world is unleashed. Because at the cross, we see that life-wrecking and world-wrecking darkness is real. But Christ has triumphed over the darkness. We see that he is the king who gave up glory, that we might share it. He's the substitute who dies the death we deserve so that we might live. He's the forsaken, abandoned, so that we might be accepted. And he is the son who makes it possible for every one of us who look on him and love him and trust him can become sons and daughters of God. And it's this, it is this gospel, this good news, that can change our hearts and so change the world. Because it's only this that has the power to both humble us as we see our sin for what it truly is and lift us up. And it is all done through the weakness of the cross which is the power of God. Let's pray.